ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? You have? They're here. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Did you see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? Got your stick. Hold! Him up! Smoke him! Make him hard! Ready! Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world. Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. Hello everyone, welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I am your host, Scott White, and I have a guest that has not been on in quite some time. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Meredith Nudo, and the fact that I'm here proves that death threats to Scott work. Yes, they do. What I did was, we did Ghostbusters 2, and then we did the pilot episode of the real Ghostbusters cartoon, and then we did Casper, which had Dan guest starring and did a cameo as Ray Stance. With a mustache. With a mustache. And the last podcast, when this comes out, we're going to probably be in February. So if you're listening to this right now, well, you know what time it is, but we're recording it in December, but this is going to come out sometime in February. But the last podcast of 2023 was a rerun that Meredith and I did called The Gift of Winter, which was a Christmas cartoon. And actually, that was the very first IMDb credit for Dan and Gilderet. Oh, today I learned. And every time we did a podcast, Meredith, like, when are we going to do Ghostbusters, the original? When are we going to do Ghostbusters? So we're, we're doing Ghostbusters, the original. Yay! Finally. I so have been the, begging since the beginning been, of this podcast to let you me... You have been begging. So this podcast is actually going to follow the Blues Brothers. So the Blues Brothers is coming out in January, and this is going to come out in February. And I would say the Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters are Dan's two biggest movies and his two most iconic characters. I would agree. As I mentioned in in the Blues Brothers podcast, it's very rare that somebody has two iconic characters that are just in pop culture. And Dan has that with Elwood Blues and Dr. Ray Stance from Ghostbusters. 
Yeah, I, I can't really disagree with you on that. So where did you first discover Ghostbusters? I saw this in the theater, and you're much younger than I am. So where did you first discover it? Yeah, I'm actually younger than the movie, even. Yes. Um. So, obviously, and I believe that I said this in the real Ghostbusters episode, my first exposure to Ghostbusters was the cartoon. So, it was reversed for me. I saw the cartoon first, and then I think later on my dad was like, wait, what, there's a cartoon? Oh, psh, you need to see the movie. Because my dad was a really big fan of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis's comedy. So then we watched the movie. And I loved it. Oh, and Rick Moranis. My dad loved Rick Moranis. Yes, those are so, all Second City people. Yep. And my dad was a really big fan of Second City. So it makes sense. Did your view of Ghostbusters change? Because uh, up until that point, all you knew was the cartoon. How did it change when you saw the, the original? It was, uh, what, how, how did it change? Not over much. I think I was extremely confused as to why Egon wasn't a blonde. And then later on, I found out that that ha- it was a likeness rights thing. But watching the movie, I was like, yeah, this tracks. Yeah, Egon in the movie wasn't a blonde and he didn't have a rat tail. Yeah, I was, I, I, that I think was the most confusing part of all. We're both big fans. I rewatched it yesterday. I watched it, tw- I watched it once. I watched it twice, actually, and I watched it once straight through, and then I watched it again with the audio commentary with Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis. It was, you know, bittersweet hearing Harold Ramis uh, on the audio commentary. Now, I haven't listened to the audio commentary, so I can't speak to that, but you obviously go ahead and and add some things in here. I definitely will. One thing I will say about the audio commentary is putting it together from the bits and pieces. They said it was about the turn of of the millennium. So it was obviously around 1998, 1999 when they did this audio commentary. And we all know that Harold Ramis and Bill Murray had that giant falling out on Groundhog's Day, which was in 1993. And I will say this. I am very impressed that Harold Ramis had nothing bad to say about Bill Murray. This was like six or seven years into their feud, and he had nothing bad to say. Even light of now, where, like, <laughs> Bill Murray is getting kicked off of projects because he's so hard to deal with. But so like I said, give hard. I give Harold Ramis 100% credit. He never said anything bad about Bill Murray. Everything he said in the commenta- uh, on the audio commentary was positive and uplifting. But he has every right to still say mean things about Bill Murray. I hear that Bill Murray is, like, horrible to work with. Well, I hear like him and Chevy Chase, they're always compared. Yeah. Chevy Chase gets more of a, a bad rap about that than Bill Murray. But yes, Bill Murray is notoriously hard, notoriously hard to work with. He was on, Just getting him to be on this movie was notoriously hard. As I'm sure you know this, this when Dan wrote this movie, it was supposed to be for him and John Belushi. Yeah. But, but John died. And so it went to That puts a damper on things, yes. But from what I understand, Slimer was supposed to be their homage to John It was. Yes, it was. And that was in the the commentary. That is 100% true. That was their homage to uh, to John Belushi, Slimer, and pretty much the character he played in Animal House. He's just a party animal that liked to have fun, so. That was actually another, uh, another difference between the, the cartoon and the movie was Slimer was a lot grosser. 
So because you you were seeing him from like from two dimensions and then the three dimensions. So it's it's nastier. There it's it's the the grotesqueness of him is is much more uh tangible. And God, do I love the puppetry in this movie. And the practical effects, they hold up so well. They hold up so well. And they it make looks the, amazing. And it makes the computer-generated effects look so bad. And, and I know it's 1984, and they work with what they had, but there's, there's always this debate going on right now against practical, against computer-generated effects. And the practical effects, like you said, in this movie are wonderful. See, here's and they how ma- I see it. I, I feel like, why is there a debate between practical versus computer when we've seen so many times before that combining the two really yields the best results. Uh, look at Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park and how it was both animatronic and computer. They used the computer to kind of fill in the, the issues that you would have with animatronic and vice versa. And it, it still looks fantastic. So, I mean, my in my mind, in the practical versus computer debate, it's why not both at the same time? It looks fantastic. I'm sure it has to do with money. I'm sure that's, I, I'm sure I mean, it has to do with money. Yeah, billion dollar corporations, they've got the money. They're just not spending it. And I think that's very silly. But that's a debate for a completely different podcast where I have a lot of opinions in all caps. But speaking of special effects, this movie starts off with some awesome special effects in the New York Public Library. Mm-hmm. Where this little old library worker, she's down in the, the depths of the New York Library and it's just very simple. She's walking down this aisle and the books move from one from one shelf to another. And it's very simple and it's very effective. It's an iconic sequence for a reason. Because it looks great. Yes. It looks great. It it, it has excellent flow. Uh, one thing that I really like too is, is the ghost library and just going, shh. Yes. It's so, it's, oh, it's so great. It looks so great. I love it. I love everything about the sequence. Well, yeah, and then when she walks past the card catalog and the the card catalog, oh, man, if if anybody's young younger watching this, they're not going to know what that is. But all the cards go flying out of the out of the card catalog when she walks by, and in the audio commentary, Harold Ramis said that the only thing that sucked about that was picking up the cards and putting them back for multiple <laughs> for multiple takes. They had to do multiple takes of that, so. So every time it was like, okay, cut. They picked up the cards, put them back in, and they had to do it all over again. And then she runs into something. At this point, we don't see it. She yells. There's this big gust of wind, and then we get the Ghostbuster logo. We don't get any lyrics, but we get the music from Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. I love that song. That was the top song Um, of that year. as, As well it should be. As well it should be. It's very good. I actually did a podcast on that video oh nice there was legal battles so apparently huey lewis yeah i remember that yeah huey lewis did a song that was close to that and huey lewis sued ray parker jr and won but there was a gag order and huey lewis broke the gag order so ray parker jr sued huey lewis and won (laughs) it's just very it was very convoluted yes Um, and i love huey lewis too so this is uh very that's tough yeah that's when your parents are fighting Uh, mom dad don't fight Uh, yeah exactly exactly i'm like how how can you pit two kings against each other then we cut to bill murray and this it's just written on the in red it has you know uh uh dr vinkman dr stance uh you know dr spangler but written in red it looks like in lipstick it's like uh, dr vinkman burn in hell and we walk in we go in and it's bill murray 
and he's doing shock treatment tests on a, a male student and a female student. And this is something that would not fly today, I don't think. I uh, mean, it should not have been able to fly back then. It was pretty gross. But uh, at the same time, like, it still fits the character. So, it like, fits I'm, the character. This opening sequence. He's gross. And I, I think part of the reason why it didn't bother me over much is the fact that it's not, it's not portrayed as okay. It, it establishes him as a, kind of a shitty person. So he's got a male and a female student, and he's holding up the cards, and it's like, if you guess what the card is, he doesn't shock you. But if you don't guess, he does shock you. Right. And the guy is getting him right, and he's still shocking him, and the girl is getting him wrong, and he's not shocking her. Yeah. And, and he's just he's just doing this to... Yeah. Because he's not... To get in her pants. That's why he's yeah, doing he's this. Yeah, because he's not a good scientist. He's not an ethical scientist. And that that establishes very early on that he's he's just deeply unethical in his yeah. work. It's an establishing character moment. Like I said, it, it's, it's not portrayed as this is okay. The laughs come from the fact that, wow, this guy's audacity. Um, so it doesn't bother me. Not he's only not unethical, but he's, he's just a... As it, as somebody's going to point out later, he's just a poor scientist. And then Ray busts in and is like, we got to go to the library. You know, there's something happening at the library. And from what uh, I've gathered, it's like 85% of Bill Murray's lines were ad-libbed. He just didn't stick. Yeah, I could see that. He just didn't stick. But just the banter between all three of them is just, it's just fantastic. You know, they're walking into the library and he's like, oh, you remember I... I witnessed that sponge migration. He's like, Ray, the sponge has migrated a foot and a half. Honestly, that's still something to be excited about. Uh, <laughs> sp- I, I don't know. I See, I really like Ray a lot because I love his enthusiasm about everything. Ray has the child. Yeah, Ray has the childlike wonder of I the think, group. I think Egon does too, but he's not as, uh, he's not as, um, he doesn't have the same mannerisms about it, but like the fact that he collects mold, spores, and fungi. That is awesome. That's an awesome collection. I would love to have him talk to me about his collection of mold, spores, and fungi because I like those things. And even though I'm not a paranormal investigator and I'm not really much of a believer in that kind of thing, I love listening to people like Ray who get really excited about it. Like I'm not, I don't really believe in astrology, but I have friends that do. And I could listen to them talk about it for hours, even if it's, I'm not a believer, just because their enthusiasm for it, their their breadth of knowledge and their joy in it is so infectious. So, like, that's why I really... It's just I really listening to anybody like that. Uh, do you remember, uh, we had a, uh, do you remember Chad from uh, from Improv, Chad Minshew? Of course, I love Chad. Chad, if you're listening to this, I love you. Chad loves the Oakland A's, which is a baseball team, and... It was like, it was just one day talking to him. He went to an Oakland A's, he went to a an Astros game where they were playing the A's, and just how he was talking about it. He was just so excited. And I'm not an Oakland A's fan, but just hearing him talk about it, I got excited. So I totally understand what you're talking about. When yeah. somebody is very passionate about what they like and they're sharing it with you, it is it is very infectious. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why Ray always just made my little happiness heart go doki doki because he's just a really, really fun character. And from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't um 
Wasn't Dan Aykroyd's dad a paranormal investigator in real life? Ooh, that I don't know. Only we had the internet. We could probably look that up. They come into the library and Egon is there. They interview the the librarian who runs into it. Oh, you're here. Yeah, yeah. what have you got? This is big, Peter. This is very big. There's definitely something here. Egon, this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole through your head. Do you remember that? That would have worked if you hadn't stopped no, me. I'm Roger Delacroix. Are you the man from the university? Yes, I'm Dr. Finkman, Dr. Stance, Egon. Thank you for coming. Hope we can clear this up quickly and quietly. Let's not rush things. We don't even know what you have yet. I don't remember seeing any legs, but it definitely had arms because it reached out for me. Arms? I can't wait to get a look at this thing. Alice, I'm going to ask you a couple of standard questions, okay? Have you or any member of your family ever been diagnosed schizophrenic, mentally incompetent? My uncle thought he was St. Jerome. I'd call that a big yes. Uh, are you habitually using drugs, stimulants, alcohol? No. No, no, just asking. Are you, Alice, menstruating right now? What has that got to do with it? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Vinkman is the ultimate con man. You think, why, do, why does Ray and Egon need Vinkman? But I, they need him because... They are so analytical that they need somebody who can work in real life. If you if you understand what I'm saying, it's like yeah, I don't. Ray and Egon would not. They'd get taken advantage of left and right because they're just so involved in the world. They need somebody who knows how the world works, and that is Vinkman. That they needed they needed Vinkman's uh, people skills. Yes, and actually, I just so uh, Peter Ackroyd Senior, who is Dan Ackroyd's father has published a book, A History of Ghosts, because the family has a historic... I, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing off of Wikipedia here, um, but Wikipedia, it, just looking at the uh, the sources, it's pretty legitimate sourcing. So, uh, But yeah, he the whole family has been involved in the spiritualist movement. So a lot of what uh, Dan Aykroyd was talking about was, you know, does stem from his family history. Which I love. I love that. I mean, that's from what I've understood, a lot of the, the techno babble that he uses in the movie is pretty accurate to spiritualism and and ghost hunting, which I, I think is fantastic. Oh, yes. He definitely researched it. The if not actually practiced it. I mean, like I said, it runs in the family. So, I mean, it's possible. Like, like I'm gonna, I'm, I would go to a seance if I was invited, even though I'm a non-believer. I'm still curious, you know? The thing with Dan is, it's like Dan wrote the Blues Brothers and he wrote this. Both of his original scripts, uh, John Landis, who directed the Blues Brothers, and Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, said these these scripts are great, but they're unfilmable. And so John Landis edited, you know, and helped write Blues Brothers, and then Harold Ramis came in and edited and helped write the Ghostbusters. So Dan's ideas are, are out there, but they had to be reined in. And that's where these co-writers came in to, yeah. to shape Dan's I, work. And I mean, sometimes we need that. Oh, and absolutely. I, like you said, he is a fantastic ideas guy. Yes. Uh, but fantastic ideas guy. I love the high concept stuff that he brought to, to Ghostbusters and Blues Brothers. I really, I really miss super high concept movies like this. Uh, the fact that everything, everywhere, all at once did so well. Gives me hope that in the future we'll get more just really weird stories made with love. 
or at least original stories. Yes. This is a this is a a weird story made with love, and that's why I love it. Like, absolutely, I've seen this movie a hundred thousand million times, and also I want to talk about Ernie Hudson. We will talk about Ernie Hudson on my other podcast, which is more gooder. I just did one on a psych episode where Ernie Hudson was in it, and I have nothing but praise for Ernie Hudson. I, I love have, Ernie Hudson. I have a lot of very positive things to say about Ernie Hudson too. Um, one thing is to. that he doesn't age. It was. <laughs> We talked about the latest Ghostbusters with him, Dan, and Bill, and how he looks great, and Dan and Bill look like they're ghosts themselves. <laughs> it's just like, wow. So, now, see, I the only new Ghostbusters that I have seen is the 2016. I have not seen the two sequels, mostly because I was a bit uh, scared to watch them. Mostly because, I, I don't know, I'm weird about sequels. It's not that I'm anti-sequel, like... The sequels to um, uh, both of the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure sequels are incredible because I love Bill and Ted. I I think that maybe a past the torch kind of sequel is going to be a harder sell for me. But we're not here to talk about that movie. We're here to talk about the original, yeah. the one that started it all. The so classic! The, so we were walking in the, they, they were down in the basement and they ran into the ectoplasm and that is food preservative. That's what Harold Ramis said. That's the... the <laughs> The ectoplasm I love that. is food preservative. And they ask Vinkman to get a sample and he gets it all over his face and his fingers. And he's like, yeah. He slimed he, me. <laughs> and then they walk and there's these books just stacked up. And then Bill Murray. Yeah, you're right. No human being would stack books like this. It's Bill is the consummate skeptic. Egon and, and, and Ray. It's like this, you know, they're all four ghosts. And once again, Vinkman is... You know, he's the skeptic. He has to keep them in line until they go around the corner and they actually see the ghost, which looks great. That's a great effect. It, my cold dead heart is just so happy with these special effects. They're like, what do we do? We should talk to her. And they sit and of course they send Bill out and, you know, where are you from originally? And she, and like you said, then she just goes, shh. And they're like, okay, that didn't work. And then Ray's like, I have a plan. All right, get her! And they run towards her, and then she turns into a demon. They all get scared and run out of the library. And that's just a fun scene. I don't know if they were able to, this was just circumstance or whatever, but they run out of the front of the library, and there's a bunch of pigeons. So when they run down the stairs, all these pigeons fly up, and it's a great effect. And I don't know if that was just planned or if that just happened by circumstance, you know, hap- I don't know, habit. because I could see it happening either way, because New York and pigeons. Yep. And now they're all walking back to the college. They're all college professors. Egon has figured out that they have a chance to actually catch a ghost. And when Bill Murray, Vinkman, hears this, the wheels start turning. Because he's always he's always thinking of the next thing. And he's like... So what you're saying is we could actually catch ghosts. Egon's like, yes. So now you know, so now Peter's like, okay, we could go into business. Well, actually, it, it comes in later. They get back to the college, and they are getting thrown out of the college. They're, you know, the college is tired of paying for it. And right here, the dean, Dean Jagger, I believe it is. Yeah. Dean Jagger just tells us what we what we all think about Peter Vinkman. He's like, your theories are half-hearted. Your conclusions are not scientific. He, and he basically goes, you 
are just a poor scientist. And he just because he just he lays is. and he is. Oh, he's a this this is one of those scenes where he's supposed to be the bad guy, but he is a hundred percent correct. Yeah, I he is feel 100% like that about correct. Walter I feel like that about Walter Peck too, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Yes. Where like maturity is understanding that in a lot of ways Walter Peck was right. He was. <laughs> we'll get into that. We he's will a get dick into about that. it, but it's it's not he's not wrong. And so they get thrown out of the college, and Bill Murray's like, okay, we're going to go into business for ourselves. And Ray's like, what we need is going to cost us a lot of money. And to me, they're both sharing this bottle of booze, and they're drinking back and forth. And Ray's like, oh, God, the containment center we need is going to cost us a lot of bread. Where are we going to get it? And Bill Murray just looks him right in the eyes and goes, I don't know. (laughs) Those are just perfect lines. This... The the line it's just perfect comedic performances in this movie. There are so many quotable lines. I I it's been a while since I've watched it, and when I watched it again, I forgot just how quotable this movie is. Oh, I mean, I I have friends that are massive, 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 massive Ghostbusters fans, so uh, we quote it regularly to one another. Well, they end up... I'm, I'm very partial to That's a Big Twinkie. One thing I forgot about this movie is all the smoking. Everybody smokes in this movie. Especially Aykroyd. He sm- he's a chain smoker in this movie, but Ernie Hudson smokes, and Dan, and Dan smokes, and Bill Murray smokes a lot. Well, you know, but busting ghosts is hard. You gotta, you gotta do something to relax. And it was the <coughs> well, 80s. that's it, so... So, but Harold Ramis did not smoke, but his thing was junk food because earlier, you know, Peter gives him the crunch bar earlier and, you know, that Twinkie was his with all the smoking going on with the other three. Harold Ramis's was junk food. Yeah. Just displaces the smoking with sugar. Yes. That's healthy. uh, But that being said, this was not supposed to be a kid's movie. This was supposed to be an adult movie. Oh, yeah. But my dad showed me age inappropriate movies all the time. Right. But kids love this movie. And they were shocked. They were shocked that kids love this movie. So when they did Ghostbusters 2, which you and I did a podcast on. Yeah. They they took out the smoking. So nobody smokes. If if you go back and watch Ghostbusters 2, nobody smokes in Ghostbusters 2. You're, I, I'm sure you're correct. I just haven't watched it recently. I think the last time I watched Ghostbusters 2 was uh, for our podcast. Because usually when I want to watch a Ghostbusters, I just watch the original. You just watch the original. Yes. But when yeah. Ghostbusters 2 came out, no smoking. So all the smoking was taken out. Not taken out, but it wasn't written in. Because they were shocked at how many kids love this movie. There's a lot to love about it. Like I said, I first saw it when I was a small child. And I mean... Like my, like I said, my dad let us watch a lot of age inappropriate stuff. I think we watched Stripes when I was a child. Um, Stripes is a great movie. Groundhog Day, like we watched a lot of those SCTV folks m- movies when we were when we were tiny. And um, like my big thing, I love Mister Stay Puffed. <laughs> um, uh, Mister Stay Puffed is probably the reason why I love kaiju movies as an adult. Like I went as Mister Stay Puffed for Halloween one year. And I got a little, uh, I found a little Dan Aykroyd doll <laughs> that I carried with me. So, uh, you know, and I would step on it for photos and things. And uh, just really, really love Mr. Stay Puffed. And I think that's why, because there's a lot of playful imagery in it. Yes. Well, there is. And there's some legitimately scary parts in this movie. 
Yeah, um, but the but it's mitigated by being a horror comedy. Yes, not just a straight up horror. No, no, this is definitely a ho- horror a- comedy sci-fi. Yes. Yeah, which I love. I love the combination of horror comedy sci-fi. Any of those three things in combo, I am going to be a sucker for. Especially horror sci-fi. So they get the money by putting a third mortgage on Ray's house. And now they go to the the famous firehouse. Egon and Vinkman are talking. What do you think? And Egon's like, um, well, it's structurally in, you know, it's structurally poor. The the wiring is insufficient for what we need. We're in a bad neighborhood. And then all of a sudden you hear Ray. He's like, does this pole work? And he slides down the pole. This place is great. We should stay here tonight. And once again, this the the, the childlike exuberance of of Ray just comes out, and and Vinkman and Egon know that they're not going to talk him out of it. So they end up yeah. buying this building. There's office space, sleeping quarters, and showers on the next floor, and there's a full kitchen on the top level. It just seems a little pricey for a unique fixer-upper opportunity. That's all. What do you think, Egon? I think this building should be condemned. There's serious metal fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs. And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. Hey, does this pole still work? Wow, this place is great. When can we move in? You've got to try this pole. I'm going to get my stuff. Hey, we should stay here tonight. Sleep here, you know, to try it out. I think we'll take it. Good. I feel like of all the Ghostbusters, I'm totally a Ray. <laughs> what about you? Probably, I, I think you're more of a Vinkman. I'm more of a Vinkman. Less less, you're less creepy to women. I've seen you act around women and behave around women, and you're not as much of a creep. Uh, so you're like a less creepy Venkman. Thank you. You're welcome. That's my that's my compliment to you. A less creepy for the Venkman. holidays. For the holidays, that's my compliment to you. But you, I'm gonna still go back to making mean comments. Absolutely. When it's not the holidays. Then we see Ray pull up with uh, the Ecto One. It's not the Ecto One yet, but it's just this beat up old car. Uh, what would would it? Is that a hearse? What kind of? I thought it was an old police car. It's something. Yeah, it, well, it, you know what the Ecto-1 looks like. And he pulls up and he's like, and and of course, Bill, you know, it's like, how much did it cost? $4,800. And that's an 84 money. And he's like, it just needs brake pads and you know, it needs shocks and brake pads and this and that. And, you know, a lot of Dan Aykroyd speak in this movie. Yeah, which is one of my favorites. I love, I love Dan Aykroyd speak. Love I, Dan I Aykroyd study, speak. I actually study the way he talks. Uh, a lot for comedy's sake, um, because I've had to play characters where they they zip off a lot of techno babble really fast, and I will sit and just listen to Dan Aykroyd talk. He does it with the best of them. He really does. Like I obviously I cannot anywhere near match him, so I'm not putting myself at his level. But I am saying that I do study him a lot comedically if you play a lot of fast talking characters especially ones with techno babble there's no one better to study no. you know who else is very good is uh, jane Curtin. when they do the coneheads together jane Curtin can yes. do the fast babble 
just as well as Dan. She is fantastic as well. I haven't watched as much Coneheads as I've watched Ghostbusters, though. Oh, uh, as it should be. Have you done Coneheads for this? I, I have. Uh, yes, this I have. Podcast yet? Yes. Gotcha. We cut to. We're introduced to Sigourney Weaver for the first time. We see her. She gets out of a cab in front of her apartment, and Sigourney Weaver. I don't know why. I'm sort of obsessed with the height of actor. This is a tall cast. Bill Murray and Harold Ramis are six two. Dan Aykroyd is six one, and Sigourney Weaver is six foot as a woman. And her, her, yeah. her, 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 Ernie Hudson are six feet. So you know, that's why she's such a wonderful physical performer too. Is because she really knows how to use her height to its fullest advantage. That's why she was as just iconic as she is as Ripley. So she's wearing heels. She could be six three, six four, because it's always weird. It's and because it it really stands out when they're in a scene with Annie Potts and Rick Moranis. I think Rick Moranis is like five four, and Annie Potts is like five three. So it's really funny because as we see Sigourney Weaver, she walks up to her apartment. And Rick Moranis comes out to meet her, who's her neighbor. And it's just very, very funny. He's 5'4", she's 6 feet. He obviously has a giant crush on her. And another, I will point out, another actor who knows how to use his height, or lack thereof, to his advantage. He is also another excellent, excellent, excellent physical performer. And the both of them, it's on full display here. It is on full display. Now that part was originally supposed to go to John Candy. Really? Yes. They wanted John... And then he... And well, then he passed or he wasn't able to do it? He passed because he wanted to do it in a German accent. He had this weird mm. take on the character. And Ivan Reitman was like, no, I don't want you to do it. And he eventually passed. And it went to Rick Moranis, which I think, no com- I think, no complaint there. Yeah, especially because like he's very, very, very much in the mold of uh, Seymour from... Uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you. I love that movie. He's very much in that mold here, and he just, he works so well in that, and I think that it works much better against Sigourney Weaver and what they were trying to do with the both of them. Right, I think um, if, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have come off as, as innocent if John Candy was hitting on Sigourney Weaver, because John Candy is just this big bull of a man. It just, you think of Rick Moranis as, you know, he's just this five foot four accountant, really nebbish. But if John Candy was hitting on Sigourney Weaver in this German accent, that would just be weird. It would just be off-putting. It would, it would be, it would, it would kind of even, uh, even if it was not intentional, it would kind of play on like this creepy European right, yes. thing. And it, it doesn't, like, he could have made it work if he wasn't being German. I think because John Candy, he's a really likable, affable guy. And I could definitely buy him, even if he's like you said, a big bull of a man. I could still buy him as a kind of an oblivious sweetheart if he didn't do the German accent. I could. I could see it working because because John Candy is is was a consummate actor and he definitely could do the all oh, shucks. I don't think with the German accent it would have worked. He wanted to have, I think, yeah, he wanted to be this German, and then he wanted to have like two pit bulls with him, two dogs. And no, Ivan Reitman's like, well, we, you know, that we've already got the dog motif going at the end of the film, and it was just they just couldn't get on the same page with the character. So John Pat. That is an that is an awesome character for another movie. If he actually sense. does that character in SCTV. There, oh, okay. Yes, he does it. If, you, if you're if you looking for what he was going for, there is actually a sketch on SCTV where he plays that character. Okay, well, there you go. I think that's a great character. I just 
don't think it works in Ghostbusters. You know, Sigourney sort of blows him. You know, she he invites her. He's having a party in a couple of days, and he invites her, and she's like, well, maybe I'll stop by. And then she walks into her apartment, and her TV's on. And Rick Moranis goes, people were complaining that your TV was so loud. And she's like, oh, I didn't know I left it on. We go in, the TV is on, and we see the commer- the Ghostbusters commercial. It's one, you know, And they made it look like one of those cheesy commercials. We're ready to believe you. I, and I love it. I love it so much. Um, if you, it makes me so happy. If you notice in the commercial, when Egon steps forward to deliver his line, he looks down for his spot. And that was intentional. Yeah. It was like, because he's, you know, he's not an actor, he's a scientist. So you see him look down, walk onto his spot, and then his head comes up when he delivers his line. And that's very, it's very subtle, but also very funny. Mm-hmm. It's the little details like that. It's the little details. They, like I said, every every actor and comedian needs to study this movie. Especially Ernie Hudson! <laughs> Can we please talk about Ernie Hudson? Ernie doesn't come in until about uh, 40, okay. 40, 45 minutes into the movie. Okay. And there's a reason for that. And once we get to Ernie, I'll I'll explain. You might already know, but I, I'll explain to our listeners. She starts putting her food away, and then there's this great effect where she puts her eggs down next to a bag of Stay Puffed marshmallows. Mm-hmm. And the eggs start popping and cooking on the counter. And I uh, apparently they just heated the counter. It was just like an oven on the counter. But it worked. And it, it was something yeah. very simple. But it was just like very off-putting. I can't stress enough how, how these simple little tricks, just sometimes being extravagant works. Sometimes these little, this, uh, one book traveling from, you know, on a, on a wire. That's all you need to set the mood. This, these eggs just popping and cooking on the counter. That's all you need to set the mood. And then I she, loved it so much. And then she hears growling and she opens the refrigerator and, you know, and we get to see, is was that Zool or was that Gozer? Was that Gozer saying the name Zool? I think it was... I think it... I think it was Gozer I, saying Zool. Maybe... It, I don't remember. <laughs> I just knew it was the dog. It was the dog. So she opens the refrigerator. This dog creature says Zool... And she slams it shut. And then we cut back to the Ghostbusters. And this is where we first see Annie Potts uh, as the secretary. And it is just... And she's, and he call, she's so great. She's so great. So she gets there and Bill Murray's is like, any calls? No, doctor. No, Dr. Vankman. <laughs> Type something. Well, you were paying for this stuff. <laughs> and he goes, don't look at me with those bug eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I don't know if this is a turning point. With his character, but he's like, you know, Janine, I'm sorry about the bug eyes thing. Yeah, so he's like, he apologizes for that. and Right, and it's probably a turning point because she's immune to him. Once again, she is not like Ray or Egon. She's from the real world. One thing a bullshitter can see is another bullshitter. And I think, you know, yep. they both come from the same world. So, you know, they know each other's tricks, and so she's not falling for his stuff. You know, she's not naive at all. And we talked about this. In this movie, she is like a no-nonsense New Yorker. She's not going to be pushed around. And she loses that in Ghostbusters 2. And she just sort of becomes a romantic damsel in distress character. Which I really hate. Which I really, yeah. I really hate that. And I hated that hair, you know, whatever, that that Moe Howard hairdo that she had in number two. I don't know about that, but but this is the the Janine prototype. Yeah, and I, that was another thing. That was another difference between the uh, the the TV show and the movie too. Was like she was obsessed with Egon in the show. In the audio commentary, they said they tried. It was 
you know, they tried the romance between her and Egon and Harold Ramis was like, it just never, it just never came together in the movie. Yeah. I, he just seems very, he's oblivious. And then he, he needs, he needs a, he I mean, honestly, if anyone was going to work with him, it would be, it would be Ray. I was going to, if you're going to, if you're going to ship him with anyone, probably Ray. But this isn't really a, a heavily romance. No, no. Movie anyway. Well, well, okay I mean. I mean, it has it, it but has it's not it. as heavy. It's not that heavy. It's, you know, it's we, we have the Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray, which happens now. So. Sigourney Weaver comes into their place and she walks in and she's like, I don't have an appointment. Bill Murray is in the back of the office and he hears her and it's a very, you see his head pop up and he runs and he jumps over one of those low hanging doors that you walk through and he jumped over it. In the commentary, Harold Ramis goes, he barely made it over that. He almost tripped and he goes, if he would, <laughs> he goes, if he would have tripped and fell, he would have been pissed for the rest of the day because they called him one take Murray. He's like, they only, yeah. <laughs> It was like one take and that's it. I mean, look, as as difficult as they say he is to work with, he does have talent. No, absolutely. But I can also understand why nobody would want to work with him. Like, I, I'm never going to be like, this should have been Bill Murray in a movie. Because I'm like, no, you probably didn't cast him for a reason. So they say that, you know, Sigourney Weaver really wanted to do this movie because she wanted to do comedy. Because up to that point, she went to, um, I believe it was Yale Drama School. And she said they in her bio, she did a lot of comedies there. Yeah. Once you're kicking ass as Ripley. Right. So she didn't want to be typecast. Yeah. And she really wanted to do comedy. Now, and it's always, so she wanted to do comedy. On the other hand... Bill Murray, the only reason he did this movie is, he goes, if Columbia did his a movie called The Razor's Edge, and that was the movie he did right before this, and that was a drama. So we always get this, where comedians want to do drama, and serious actors want to do comedy. And this is, like, both of them butting heads. So Bill Murray was like, if you produce my movie, The Razor's Edge, I'll do Ghostbusters. And Columbia agreed. And Razor's Edge was a huge flop. And, of course, Ghostbusters is now iconic. That said, I, I have seen Bill Murray in dramas that are flowers. No, no. I, he, he was great in Broken Flowers. He can act. He, he, he can do dramas. Definitely. Yeah. He just can't do Razor's Edge. <laughs> now all three of them are interviewing Sigourney Weaver. She's got electrons on her head. It's like, well, she's telling the truth. And she's like, why would I lie? And, you know, people just looking for attention. And there's this, this really subtle scene where Bill Murray stands up and he looks at Egon and Ray and he does the, he does the help me out here guys it's like uh there's certain things we do in this situation <laughs> he's like he's giving him like what do you you know say something make us make us sound professional Ray and Egon you know I could look up the building see if there's any paranormal activity been there Bill Murray suggests that okay and I'll go back to uh Dana Barrett's that I'll go back to Dana's apartment and check her out uh, I'll go back out and you know and check out Dana Barrett's apartment or yeah and they head back he's got this machine well he comes in and this apparently was all ad lib all you know all this dialogue with him and Sigourney Weaver where he starts doing the thing with the piano starts playing the keys yeah it's like oh they hate this they do and then he's got that line you know he looks in the bedroom and she goes that's the bedroom but nothing ever happened in there and he's like what <laughs> what a crime <laughs> and she goes you're not like a scientist and the original line was you're not like a scientist you're like more like a used car salesman but apparently on the day of the shoot, Sigourney Weaver changed it to, you're not much of a scientist, you're more like a game show host. And they liked that line better, and they kept it in. 
I like I like it better too. Yes, actually. so Sigourney Weaver was ad libbing with the best of them. Yeah, I mean, because that's a th- dramatic actors can still do improv. Oh, absolutely. They get into the kitchen, and there's this big dramatic moment where he opens a refrigerator, and he's just like, "Look at all the junk food." Obviously, Coke and Oscar Mayer they paid to be in this movie because you open it up and and uh, Perrier water. So there's Perrier. like Perrier water and two cans of Coke, and and Vickman actually takes this like salam, this Oscar Mayer salami, and like holds it up. He's like you eat all this stuff? So obviously they were all sponsors. They could not have used that without their permission. And I find it hard to believe that somebody would have Perrier and Coke in their refrigerator. I think if you're drinking Perrier, you're probably not drinking Coke. That's that's not true. That's not true at all. They, they drink sparkling water and Coke in Europe. Together? No, but they still have it. Like They, they scratch different itches. They're both fizzy drinks, but one has sugar and one doesn't. Well, you know, maybe because she did buy she did buy marshmallows, so evidently, maybe she, I guess yeah. she does have a sweet tooth. Yeah, but she's got to have the Perrier in there because it tastes good, and and it's it's so she can be like, look, I'm healthy. I'm not drinking soda every day. That's every day. That's how, yeah. that's how you fool yourself. Oh, I, yeah, I don't feel like that. You have a you have a bottle of Perrier, and it's like, oh, I'm I'm drinking healthy. So you, yeah, I don't feel like that's that's counter to anything. Like I I have uh I have cider in my fridge, but I also have water and milk, you know. So what? I I I need dairy for big strong bones. I like alcohol in moderation and I need water for hydration. I I don't see anything perfectly unusual about any of that. And there's this great interaction between them. Where Bill Murray goes, I'm not getting any reading. And she goes, are you using it correctly? And it's like, well, and he sort of stumbles, but they keep it in there. He's like, well, I think so. But I know there's a, I know there's no animals in your refrigerator. And it's a very real line because it's like the line took him by surprise. I don't know if it was a ad lib by her, but it took him by surprise. And it took him a second to get the right answer. But he, he did get it. And it, it, it just came off as very, very real. A real conversation between the two. And then he makes his move. They go back out into her living room. And then he, he confesses his love for her. And and she's not having any of it. Let me tell you something about myself. I come home from work to my place. And all I have is my work. There's nothing else in my life. Doctor, I meet you. And I say, my God, there's someone with the same problem I have. Yes, we both have the same problem. You. I'm going to go for broke. I am madly in love with you. Don't believe this. Will you please leave? And then she threw me out of her life. She thought I was a creep. She thought I was a geek, and she probably wasn't the first. You are so odd. No. I've got it. No, 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 no. I'll prove myself to you. It's not necessary. Yeah, I'll solve your little problem. Okay. And then you'll say, Pete Venkman's a guy who can get things done. Right. I wonder what makes him tick. I wonder. I wonder if he'd be interested in knowing what makes me tick. Right. I'll bet you're going to be thinking about me after I'm gone. I bet I am. No kiss. 
once again, he can manipulate his students, but not her, but not her she's because she's, you know, she is in the real world. She, he can manipulate his students, he can manipulate Ray and Egon, but once again, somebody who's been out in the world, I mean, she is a successful, she works for the symphony. So she is an, she's living on Park Avenue for crying out loud. So she is a successful, she's doing very, very well for, well for herself, herself successful, independent woman. So she knows BS when she hears it. And she's like, okay, get out. And and it, it, the scene just ends with her basically shoving him out his door, out her door. And the door closes. And then Rick Moranis, Rick Moranis, every time he hears Dana's door open, he pops out. And he hears her door close. And he pops out. And it's Bill Murray. But Rick Moranis always constantly locks himself out of his own apartment. So he's stuck in the hall while Bill Murray has to walk past him. And then we... And it's great. It is great. And then we go back to the firehouse, the Ghostbusters house, and they're all eating Chinese food. And Bill Murray's like, maybe I should uh, take some money out of petty cash to wine and dine Dana since she's our only client. And, And Dan points out, this magnificent feast is the last of the petty cash. So they're broke. <laughs> They've used up yeah. all their money. And we see uh, Janine. She's leaving for the day. And she gets a phone call. And it's just like, and I just love her. Hello, Ghostbusters. Of course, they're serious. It's like, really? And it's like, we got one. And she hits the bell. We get this great scene where the Ghostbusters slide down the pole. They're like firemen. They slide down the pole and they have, you know, their own lockers and they put on their Ghostbusting material, you know, not costumes, uniforms. And they get into the Ecto-1. This is the first time we see the Ecto-1 and it's all, all, all its glory. Looks great. And they pull up to this hotel and they unload the proton packs and they put them on. And one thing you'll notice is... They only use the proton packs here and at the end. It's not like they overdo with the proton packs. You you just get a little you get, you get a little nip of them in this movie. And they don't overuse it, which I think was very 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 smart. Yeah, that was very smart. Yes. You know, they walk into the hotel. Anybody see a ghost? We all know about the you know, so they explain that there's a ghost on the 14th floor. They get into an elevator, and this might be the, if it's not the funniest scene in the movie, it is it's right up there. We haven't tested out our proton packs. Egon turns on Ray's, and you hear it start up. And Egon and Bill Murray, you know, Vinkman, they try to get up. They're in an elevator, and they try to get away from him, which is just hilarious. It's like they've got nowhere to go. It's like if that thing blows up, what are they going to do? And then we get, you know, they're... Blow it all up with an unlicensed nuclear accelerator. Right. And then they start walking through the hall. And, and this tells you what kind of, you know, Bill Murray is. Like, Ray is like a little kid playing with, you know, he's got a, he's got the, it's unholstered. I, I don't know. What would you call, you know, the, he's pointing the proton pack. I would say it's holstered and then unholstered. Okay, so he, he has it unholstered. Yeah. You know, Bill Murray has his holstered. And Ray is just like a little kid. He's like walking around. He's hunched down. You know, he's ready for any ghost. And, and Bill's just, I still at this point don't think, I mean, even though he's seen a ghost, He's not he's not really invested in this because it hasn't made him money yet. You know, that's why he's so sort of nonchalant, I'm guessing at this point. Like he's in it for yeah. the he's not, you know, Ray and Egon are in it for the experience. You know, Egon's always like, get me a get me a specimen of that. And Ray's always childlike wonder. And Vinkman is unimpressed with this venture because it hasn't made him any money yet. And that's the only reason he's in it, is for the money. The maid comes around the corner, you know, they shoot her cart. And it explodes. What the hell are you doing? Sorry. And the the reaction is priceless. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, we thought you were someone else. And it was just like, that's... They just play it off. It's like, 
And that's where Bill comes in, being the real world guy. It's like, sorry, ma'am, we're just we're just exterminators. Just the banter between those three. And then they split up. Bill Murray has another great line. Maybe we should split up. He's like, yes, we can do more damage that way. <laughs> yeah, I love it. We run into, the first one we run into is Ray. He comes around the corner, and this is the first time we see Slimer. And he's... He's eating off a tray, so the food is going right through him. So he's eating it, and the food's just going on. Then another really, really, really excellent visual, too. It's great. It's so nasty, and I love it. Because it's yeah, because he's like pressing the plate again. He's yeah, it's gross. Is it looks some? It looks semi digested when it falls out of him, even if it's not really. I don't know. Is is there some like acid to his body I, that kind of breaks it up just a little it, bit? There, I, I there know. might be. And once again, this was, they never called him Slimer. They never called him Slimer on set. Yeah. They called him Onion Breath because apparently the sculptor, the you know, smelled like onion. So they called it Onion Breath or they called it Baby Belushi. But they never called it Slimer. That just came out, organ- that organically came out after, you know, the famous He Slimed Me line. But yeah. he was never he was never given a name in the script. He was never named Slimer. That just was this right. was something. And see, see, going into the movie, having seen the cartoon first, he was always Slimer to me, right. even if he wasn't called that. I also expected him to play a bigger role in the movie. Well, of course, just because he was the cute sidekick in the cartoon. You know, he wasn't in the original script because Belushi right. was in the original script as the Vinkman character. So after Belushi died. Both uh, both Dan and Harold wanted to pay homage to him, so he was written into the script. The guy who sculpted him said he actually had a headshot of John Belushi, and he tried to make you know he tried to capture the Belushi essence in Slimer. I it it worked. Now, obviously, I found out later that it was meant to be John Belushi, but like, it was very easy to see the connection between the two. And it was all you know. It was sort of based on his you know Bluto from Animal House. Um, oh yeah. yeah, Dan does this. Another age-inappropriate movie that I watched as a child. <laughs> There's a theme. Did you watch Caddyshack too? Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I watched all kinds of age-inappropriate movies when I was a kid. Like I, that, that probably explains a lot. We'll be back in a minute. Back. To support this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com slash Scott White and give what you're able. If you're listening on iTunes, please give a review. That should help people find this podcast. And no matter what services you use to listen, please leave feedback. We always want to improve. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Janine, any calls? No. Any messages? No. Any customers? No, Dr. Venkman. It's a good job, isn't it? Type something, will you? We're paying for this stuff. No stare at me. You got the bug eyes. Jane. Sorry about the bug eyes thing. I'll be in my office. Very handy, I can tell. I bet you like to read a lot, too. 
print is dead. Oh, that's very fascinating, Timmy. I read a lot myself. Some people think I'm too intellectual, but I think it's a fabulous way to spend your spare time. I also play racquetball. Do you have any hobbies? I collect spores, molds, and fungus. has been a Cross the Streams Media Podcast. It's here. A full torso apparition, and it's real. So what do we do? Could you come over here and talk to me for a second, please? Would you just come over here for a second, please? Right over here. Come here, Francine. Come here. What do we do? I don't know. What do you think? Stop that! We've got to make contact. One of us should actually try to speak to it. Good idea. Hello. I'm Peter. Where are you from, originally? Shh. All right, okay. The usual stuff isn't working. Okay, I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! Ah!